So, Father, thank you for wishing and willing upon this whole world and upon each one of us, Jesus. Would you now help us to see him by the power of your Spirit? Help us to preach, Lord God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Have any of you seen my dad? I'm, I'm waiting for my dad. Have any of you seen him? The tall and skinny scarecrow kid shifted before us on the street corner, fear racing across his face, dirt smeared all over his body. His speech was slowed and slurred, his eyes dull and empty. At first I thought drugs, but then I realized it was something else. The boy was mentally disabled. These are the words of Sister Mary Rose McGeady from Covenant House in New York, New York City. Have any of you seen my dad, he said. He was like a baby, really, a little, a little boy in a 16-year-old's body. I'm sorry, son, but I don't know your dad. What's your name? Eric. Hi, Eric. What, what do you mean you're waiting for your dad? He's coming back, I, I hope. Eric clenched his hands tightly into a fist and began to rock back and forth. Maybe we can help you. Where do you live, Eric? I, I, don't, I don't know. Do you live in New York City? I, I, I don't know. Do you live in a city with lots of streets and buildings? Yeah, lots of cars. When did your dad say he would be back? He just took me for a walk, and then he said, wait here, I'll be right back. That was right after he gave me breakfast, but he must be coming back, right? How long have you been here, Eric? I don't know. I've been here a while. Have you slept here? Yeah. I sleep in my pipe. I wish I had my blanket, though, because it gets really cold. Your pipe? Where's that, Eric? Eric pointed to the bridge that runs along the Hunts Point section of the Bronx and then led us to his home. Sure enough, hidden in the dirt and squalor of a dark corner sat a large old pipe. Is this where you sleep, Eric? He nodded. Eric, how many times have you slept in your pipe? One time? Two times? More times? I sleep here a lot. Eric, what's your last name? Eric? No, your other name. Do you have another name? Like, I'm Mary Rose, but my last name is McGeady. Do you have another name? Just Eric. His name was just Eric. You wonder how many people in this world are like just Eric. People with little power who find a closed door at every turn. You know, in this insanely uh, affluent and media-soaked culture of ours, we occupy ourselves with the lifestyles of celebrities and successful business folks. Well, most of the world lives like Eric, just Eric. You wonder how many people there are in this world like just Eric, people with little power who find a closed door at every turn and yet have this persistent and belligerent hope that he's coming back. 
thinking, I must have a a source, I must have a a father, and he must be coming back. Of course, we Christians, we believe that we do have a father, and he is coming back in the form of Jesus Christ our Lord. He's coming back for us. But what about Eric? You know, if you didn't want to help Eric, it would be really convenient to believe that God wasn't coming back for Eric and didn't care about Eric, that God was not Eric's father, and Eric was not your little brother. did a little research this week. Experts estimate that so far, 108 billion people have lived on the face of this earth. Whether you start counting 6,000 years ago, like a lot of fundamentalist Christians do, or you start counting 50,000 years ago, like a lot of anthropologists do, the number would be about the same, because the first 40,000 years, there would be so very few people. So 108 billion people created with the breath of God and dust, and of those 108 billion people, approximately, approximately about 8 billion of those people have named the name Jesus, called on the name of Jesus. Many of those eight billion uh, argue that God the Father is coming back for them and he's coming back for the other 100 billion who haven't called on the name of Jesus. He is coming back. He's coming back for them in order to consign them to endless torment for uh, they did not call on the name of Jesus. And this is a really ironic part. The name Jesus means God is salvation. Names mean something in the Bible. Actually, in the Bible, no one even knew the name Jesus or the word Jesus. Uh, They knew the name Jesus, that's the Greek, or Yeshua, that's the Aramaic, or Yahashua, that's the the Hebrew. Jesus is the English form of the name, and no no one spoke English in in the Bible. You see, it's not how the name sounds, but what it means. That's what what counts. God is salvation. Uh, Jesus' name means God is salvation, or God saves. Who he is and what he does is the very same thing. Well, many believe that unless you say the word Jesus before you die, then God is not salvation, but just the opposite of salvation. So in effect, they believe that we create God as salvation, that is Jesus, with our word. While Scripture clearly teaches that God creates us with his word, that is God as salvation, Jesus. Acts 4.12, there's no other name under heaven by which a man must be saved. That is entirely true. But Scripture is clear that every man under heaven will say the name. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, Philippians 2.10. So all will confess God is salvation because he is. And yet, and yet, you're not fully saved until you do, until you believe God is salvation. Until you believe you're alone. You're in the dark. You're trapped in your own illusions like a a homeless kid taking shelter in a cement pipe. So anyway, I was just wondering, how many just Eric's are there in the world? And how does God feel about them? Maybe each one of us is just like just Eric. The only difference is the size of our cement pipe. 
and whether or not we've abandoned it yet. Your cement pipe is your power, your security, your shelter against the storms of this world. Your attempt at salvation in the absence of your father. Eric had little knowledge and little power, so his cement pipe was just a cement pipe. But, but your pipe, I mean, your pipe might be made of brick and wood and have indoor plumbing and electricity. It might be your resume. It might be a name that you've made for yourself, like professor or doctor or reverend. It might be a bank account. That might be your pipe. It's security. Against this question, is he coming back? And does he care for me? Does he love me? Some of us have magnificent cement pipes. In fact, uh, pipes that are so nice that we've learned to forget the question, pretending that we don't even need to ask the question or don't want to ask the question, but, 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 but a storm is coming and there is no cement pipe strong enough, durable enough to in, endure this storm. It's the perfect storm. Anyway, Eric reminds me of Philadelphia. Not Pennsylvania, but the six of the seven churches at the start of the Revelation. Revelation 3, 7, our text for the day, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Last time we preached that the angel appears to be uh, the spirit of Christ resident in, in the church or the people in the church. Uh, some would argue that the spirit of Christ is even resident in each and every person that God created. For God breathed his breath into earth to make each person. A person, then, is like a cement pipe an earthen vessel containing the, the ruach, the breath of, of God, like just Eric. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now this is, people in Philadelphia dwelt on the earth, right? And, and yet he keeps them. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast. Hold on. A great storm is coming, the perfect storm to test those who live upon the face of the earth. But Jesus is going to keep Philadelphia from the storm. Some say that this hour of trial is a seven-year period sometime after the year 2017. So Jesus is saying this, cheer up! You won't be around for the great, great storm because I'll, I'll rapture you out before that seven-year uh, tribulation. So, so cheer up. Hold on. I'm coming soon. Actually, it will be sometime after the year 2024. That's silly. That's just silly. Jesus is saying the whole world will experience this trial at least within one generation. And then he's saying, I'll keep you from it. 
He just said, I have, um, I, he said, I will keep you from it. He promises to keep them, but, but probably not with power, right? Because this is what he just said. I have placed before you an open door. I know that you have but little power. A more literal translation is this. I have placed before you an open door because you have little power. He will keep from them from the storm, but probably, probably not with power over the storm. Probably with something more like power through the storm. He'll keep them. You, you may remember that once Jesus calmed a storm, perhaps even more amazing, he walked through a storm on the face of the water. Even more amazing to me, he slept through a storm in a boat on a raging sea. John 17, 15, Jesus prays for his disciples saying, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them out of the evil. That's the, the literal translation. He uses the same phrase there in John 17 he uses here in Revelation 3. He kept them out of the evil, and yet they all suffered the evil, right? I mean, all of his disciples died like a martyr's death, except for John, who's now writing this from a, from a prison colony. You know, people worry about the tribulation, but Jesus promised tribulation for his disciples. And can you think of a more difficult trial or tribulation in this world than the hour of your death? John 8, 51, Jesus said, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. John eleven twenty five. 25, he clarified saying, he who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. It's like believing which is faith, is dying and living all at once. And you remember Jesus did say something about uh, you, you have to lose your life. I think that's called death somehow. You have to lose your life to, 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 to find it. So maybe you can die before you die, experience eternal life now, and float right through physical death and, and on into heaven. Well, Jesus says a, a great storm. An hour of trial is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. <sighs> a little over 10 years ago, I was sitting in my office on Lookout Mountain. I've been pastoring this church that grew from less than 100 to a few thousand in like 12 years or so. I had agents and publishers competing for my attention, and we had just built a new multi-million dollar facility on the side of I-70. They had just taken out a multi-million dollar key man insurance policy on me. I had, I had power. But some folks had complained about the word that I had preached. And now my denomination was demanding that I make a, a public confession that, number one, there is a group of people that cannot be saved, which means God is unable to save some. And number two, that God takes pleasure in damning this group of people, which means that God doesn't want to save some, which to me sounded like renouncing God is salvation, or at least renouncing it it's some. It sounded like renouncing his name, Jesus I remember sitting in my office thinking about all of this, think, thinking about my staff and some people that I knew wanted control. 
my associate Gary, who was losing his mind. I knew it, but other people didn't know it. The politics of the denominational headquarters, the politics in the church, the pending trial. I had thought that I was invincible, but now as I thought of all these factors coming together from all these angles, I mean, I remember sitting there and distinctly remembering this scene from this movie, The Perfect Storm. What if Hurricane Grace went smack into it? Add to the scenario this baby off Sable Island scrounging for energy. So start feeding off both the Canadian cold front and Hurricane Grace. You could be a meteorologist all your life and never see something like this. It would be a disaster of epic proportions. It would be the perfect storm. And it was. It was the perfect storm was a miracle storm. It may have included all sorts of evil, but it was very clear to me that God was in charge. I was publicly tried, defrocked, and removed from my denomination and my church. It felt worse than death. For you know, you can die with dignity, but it felt like something was intent on stripping away all my dignity. Or what I thought was my dignity. I mean everything that I had worked for. If just Peter had a cement pipe, That was it. My cement pipe may have also been your cement pipe, for it wasn't only my church. It, it was your church. Many of you, it was, it was your church. Within a few weeks, some of you met me and, and Francis and, and Susan. You met, met with us, and, and you, you asked. A bunch of people, we all asked together, can we worship together in downtown Denver? And so 10 years ago, last night, December 9th, 2007, we held our first worship service as the sanctuary downtown. At the time, a friend gave me a prophetic word. Do not believe every word that people give you, for some people speak the name of God in vain for their own purposes, but I had come to trust prophetic words from this friend. He had also prophesied the storm. He came to me and he said, Peter, the Lord told me that Revelation chapter 3, 7 through 10, is for you. <laughs> That's what we just read. And as you know, it's, it's also for the church. It's addressed to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, and maybe to like some weird angel of our church right, right here. Look, I have placed before you an open door. Now, there is no period at the end of that Greek phrase, and it's followed by the word hoti, H-O-T-I, normally translated that, for, or because. The ESV translation is really weak, and I think that's because what Jesus next says is so counterintuitive. You know, we think that open doors are usually open through power, right? Through strength, or maybe even through dynamite, and that's the word Jesus uses, dunamis in the Greek. It means uh, dynamite, or, or strength, or power. Jesus literally says, look, I have placed before you an open door because you have little dynamite. <laughs> you have little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. In case you forget, his name is Jesus and Jesus means God is salvation. Now frankly, this is all still a bit embarrassing and extremely 
well, it's rather nerve-wracking for me to talk about this, but I think I'm supposed to do so because I didn't map out the preaching schedule with this in mind, with this verse following on December 9th, 9th last night up in Evergreen and 10th this morning down here. I didn't do that. For 10 years, the little power has felt miraculous to me. I mean, my every effort to make a big splash or set off some kind of dynamite, it's all fizzled. And yet, every time I plan to quit, I see an open door. An open door that Peter Hyatt did not open. I place before you an open door because you have little dunamis, have kept my word and not denied my name. So what's the open door? It might be worth asking that question as a church as well as individuals, even if, especially if, your name is Eric or you're just like, just Eric. So what's the open door? Maybe it's the door to your heart, or, or like to, to our heart, the church's heart. In the, in the very next section, the letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea, Jesus says this, look, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. It appears they're not opening the door in Laodicea because they have a very nice cement pipe. They say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. I don't need any help. Maybe power itself can be a closed door. And seizing power can be the very act of denying his name. The name God is salvation, Yahweh Yasha, Yahashua in Hebrew, it means Yahweh is our helper. In scripture, salvation means far more than just getting your ticket punched for heaven. It means help. That's what the word means. In the beginning, Adam couldn't find his helper. And now we discover that God is our helper. Yahashua, Jesus. Yahweh, Yahweh, Yasha. Yahweh is isness. That's kind of what it means. It's bizarre, but it means like the ground of all being, the, the creator. A creature cannot create itself or it hasn't been created. To be a creature is to be created. And to truly know your creator must be then somehow to observe your own creation. To be created is something that you cannot do by definition. To be saved is to observe your own creation and thus come to know your creator. Scripture reveals that the chief end of humanity, this is even the Westminster Confession of Faith, chief end of man is, is to know God is salvation. That's what Paul said, that I might, that I might know him, that I might know Jesus. The, the chief end of humanity is to know God is salvation, but you can't truly know God is salvation until you know that you need salvation, that you need a, a savior. In other words, to, to be truly known by you, God must create you and then let you experience a story of salvation. He must subject you to futility, disobedience, nothingness, evil, and, and the void, and then save you with his word, the very word that created you in the first place. His name is Jesus. It means God is salvation. The thing that keeps you from knowing God is salvation is believing the lie that you are salvation. So, 
Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years until the first generation died and their arrogance died. And then a man named Yahashua or Joshua led them into the promised land. Joshua is the Hebrew form of the name Jesus. Israel still, though, would uh, not keep God's word of patient endurance. Because uh, they would not keep God's word of patient endurance, then they started trusting in uh, Egypt and Syria, the kings of the earth, their own strength. They trusted in idols, and so God spent, uh, sent a prophet named Hosea, which means salvation as well. Through Hosea, God said, I will take you to the valley of trouble the valley of storms, and there in the wilderness I will make for you a door of hope. You can't know God is salvation until you realize you need salvation. And you will know that you know God is salvation when you desire God is salvation for all. We love because he first loved us, writes John. So anyway, perhaps the door is open because God has brought storms on the outside and placed his spirit on the inside and created a desire in Philadelphia and a desire in us to open our hearts to God as salvation who stands there knocking. So if you're like just Eric and you have little power, it means God loves you, and he is loving you. If you have little power, it's because God uh, loves you very much. And one day we will all have little power, won't we? That's kind of what we're all headed toward. If you have little power, it's because God loves you very much. And, and if you believe God is salvation, the door in your heart becomes a door to other people's hearts. You love because he first loved you. In several places, St. Paul talks about a door being opened for the effective preaching of the gospel. Preaching of the gospel. So it's being tried, defrocked, and removed from the second largest church in our denomination the pastor of the first largest church in our denomination pulled me aside at a meeting and he said, Peter, why are you saying these things? That God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on, on all. Why are you saying these things? Are you trying to increase church attendance? See, for a pastor, increasing church attendance is what? It's power. That's what we want. We really don't care. I mean, we care about power. We care about power. And church attendance is, is power if you're a pastor. You see, we often preach the word and even twist the word for power. He asks, are you, are you preaching these things to increase church attendance? And it was then I realized that gospel spoken from a naked man hanging on a cross sounds different than gospel spoken from a man in a BMW or a man on a golden throne, or a man sitting at a desk in an office in a powerful institution. Well, just a little before that conversation, a man that I did not know came up to me after worship in our new multi-million dollar facility. I didn't know him, and he said this. He said, he said um, as you were preaching, I heard the Lord say, he will have to stop driving the sports car. I remember looking at this guy and going, thanks, I guess. And then hoping like crazy that he was a false prophet. Don't get me wrong. Nothing's wrong with buildings. And that was a great, a great building. 
You can build very large and powerful buildings and institutions with words preached from a golden throne or a BMW, but it takes something else, takes something more to change a heart. With just a few words spoken from a cross, you can shatter a hard heart and make it new. And then that cross is no longer a curse, but a blessing, a doorway to infinite blessing. Take a look at the life story of everyone that God uses in Scripture. It's just like Soren Kierkegaard wrote. God creates everything out of nothing, and everything which God uses, or everything which God is to use, he first reduces to nothing. <laughs> ah, you've read your Bible, haven't you? Joseph, Moses, all the prophets, King David. Remember, David was the, the last candidate. He was the least of the least likely candidates, a shepherd boy. And then even as the chosen king, he was tormented by Saul. Failed miserably with Bathsheba. Uh, betrayed by Absalom, his son. And, and yet he was said to be a man after God's own heart. The keys of David refer to a steward unlocking the palace of David in Jerusalem, and I think they also refer to David's ability to unlock hearts. You know, David wrote most of the Psalms. He may have unlocked your heart. He unlocks hearts, perhaps even, I think, God's heart. He was called the man after God's own heart. But just look at everyone that God uses in Scripture to set captives free. Joseph, Moses, David, all the prophets, Peter, Paul, John the Beloved, and Jesus. Jesus had all power. All power. He could calm storms, walk on the water, heal the sick, raise the dead, create the universe, etc., etc., etc. And he emptied himself. Made himself nothing, took the form of a slave and humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. And in that place of utter weakness, hated and reviled by all humanity and feeling forsaken by God his Father, reduced to just Jesus, reduced to just God is salvation, he cried out, Father, forgive them, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And God the Father heard his prayer. Forgive them. Who's them? Well, them is me. Them is you. Them is everyone that has sinned against him. And God exalted Jesus above every name that is named. He was enthroned on a cross and he rules over all creation. But he rules it in the very same way he saves it. Look, there's a slaughtered lamb standing on the golden throne of God. There is no power greater than the power to surrender power for another. That's called love. And God is love. The power of love. God is salvation. Sociologists and psychologists, they point out that in human relationships like a marriage, you can think about this, as power increases, love decreases. And as love increases, power decreases. They define power as the ability to force your will upon another. And they define love as, as the willingness to sacrifice your will for another. Power 
can force changes in behavior, but it cannot change a heart. Only love can change a heart and create a new will. On the cross, Jesus creates a new will. His will in you. It turns out that there is no power greater than love. God is love, and love is revealed in weakness. Ron Hagee is an old friend. Some of you may remember him because he used to come speak up at the church on Lookout Mountain. He broke his neck as a teenager, and now he speaks around the country at schools. He speaks about attitude and courage. He shared that the moment that uh, changed his, his life, it came late one night in a hospital room not long after he had broken his neck. He was left alone with an eight-year-old boy whom the doctors thought might be brain dead. Ron was a football star in high school, and he told us then how he resented being in that room alone with eight-year-old Jimmy, the vegetable. That night, 37 years ago, Ron lost all hope. He said the dam just broke, and he began to sob and cry out to God alone in the darkness. He cried out, God, if you won't heal me, God, if you won't heal me, please let me die. I can't even take care of myself. I can't dig a ditch. I can't hug my girlfriend. I can't do anything. Please, please, please just let me die. And then in the darkness, he heard a voice. Ron, I love you. It was eight-year-old Jimmy. Ron said he never heard his voice again, and yet that voice changed his life. Even as I told you about Eric, a door opened in your heart, didn't it? I mean, for a moment, you stopped thinking about yourself. And you started thinking about just Eric. This is the judgment, according to Jesus. Whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers, you do to me. You see, I think Jesus actually calls to you from the powerless and the weak. And when you are weak, but you speak forgiveness, grace, and mercy to those that have mistreated you, a word rides out on your tongue, a word more powerful than all the kings of this earth and the ancient dragon who rules over them. It's the word that cuts the division of soul and spirit and sets captives free. I place before you an open door because you have little power, have kept my word and not denied my name. It's a door to your heart, to your neighbor's heart, and maybe even the heart of God. The next paragraph, the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 1 of the Revelation, John writes this, After this I looked, and, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Jesus then calls to John and said, John, come up here and take a look. John sees the throne of the Lord God Almighty and a slaughtered lamb is standing on that throne. Jesus is the lamb of God who John said is from the bosom of the Father. He's the heart of God and he bleeds for you. My uh, old associate, Gary Reddish, told me something about a father 
that have been in his congregation in Wayne, Pennsylvania, which, you know, is not far from Philadelphia and New York City. One day, late October 1991, he took his little daughter Mary, six-year-old daughter Mary, sailing off the coast of New Jersey. He hadn't checked the weather report. Six miles out, John was shocked at how fast the winds seemed to change and how quickly this storm came up. It was the storm of the century, the perfect storm, the one in the movie, the one that sank the Andrea Gale. Soon John's boat capsized. John and six-year-old Mary were in the water, and the life preservers were still tied to the boat as the boat was being driven out to sea. John held on to Mary, but he soon realized there was no way he could swim the six miles back to shore unless he swam alone. And so finally he said to Mary, 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 listen closely. You can float on your back as long as you want to. See, they had been practicing in the swimming pool at home. He said, float on your back, Mary. I'll swim to shore, and I will be back for you. Three hours later, the Coast Guard found John. Together, they looked for Mary in 20 to 30-foot swells in the midst of that storm. They looked for an hour and a half. It was almost dark, and they were using the spotlight when, miraculously, they found Mary. She had been floating for five hours. When the guardsmen pulled her on board, they asked, Mary, how did you do that? And this is what she said. Well, my daddy said I could float on my back as long as I wanted to and that he would come back for me. My daddy always does what he says. Your daddy is God, and his word is Jesus, and his word accomplishes that for which it was sent, for which he was sent. The Andrea Gale, full of strong men, sank. Coast Guard helicopters, rescue vehicles, they, they could not weather that storm. And six-year-old Mary just practiced her back float because her daddy said she could float as long as she wanted to, and he was coming back. You see, her father created faith in Mary with his word. And that faith kept Mary through the storm of the century and all the way home. She conquered the perfect storm with faith. You think you have a little power. I think most of you think that. That's probably a good thing. You, you think you have a little power. You, you're just treading water. You feel like you're treading water. But you exercise a little faith. Maybe it's just like the size of a seed, just, just a little faith. Well, I expect you're doing the backflow through the storm of the century, the angels, they look on in wonder. Jesus slept on the boat in the storm. Faith in you is his spirit rising in you and giving you peace in the midst of the storm. But, but, this, but this is now my point. Just think of John's heart. Think of 
John's heart. Mary, Mary held the key, didn't she? She held the key to his heart. I'm a father, and I can think of nothing which would move my heart more than the knowledge that just Jonathan or just Elizabeth or just Becky or just Coleman was six years old floating on the surface of the abyss in the midst of a raging storm, muttering to themselves, my daddy said he would be back, and my daddy always does what he says. If I could, I would move heaven and hell. I would move all creation. I think I would lay my life down, if necessary, just to get to my kid at that point. Nothing would have as much power over my heart or over, over their heart. I mean, if I saved them, it would be a story that they would tell their entire lives, that we would tell our entire lives. It would be a story that would like shape them in my own image. It would create them in my own image. And now you may say, okay, great, I get that, I get that. That's, that's nice, Peter, but it, it's touching. It's really, it, it's, it's touching. But, but what about Eric? What about just Eric? He had faith that his father was coming, and, and, his, and his father didn't come. Well, no. But Sister Mary Rose McGeady came and loved Eric, and Eric left his cement pipe, went home with her, and she told him about his father in heaven. Actually, his father in heaven was in Sister Mary McGeady. You know why? Uh, according to Scripture, according to Jesus, it was so that she could share the father's joy as he found Eric and saved Eric through her. And now you may say, well, okay, well, that's touching too. But what about all the Marys? What about all the Marys that, that don't make it, that drown at, at sea, and the Erics that freeze to death, and their cement pipe, because the world is full of Erics that freeze to death in their cement pipes, or the Erics that go on to construct shelters for their soul, you know, out of theft and murder and rape and, and genocide. What about the just Adolphs? Or the just Caiaphases, or the, or the just Judases, or just Saul from Tarsus. Does God the Father see them buried underneath all that fear and shame and darkness and rage? What about them? What about the hundred billion that never ever heard the name of Jesus? God is salvation. Well, as I was saying, chapter 4, verse 1, John sees an open door into heaven. And Jesus shows him the throne of God. And on the throne of God, someone that John knows, the slaughtered lamb, all creation. This is what John hears. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is within them, they worship God Almighty and God the slaughtered lamb. Every creature. That means Jimmy is there with a new body. Ron is there without his wheelchair. Eric and Sister McGeady are there. Mary is there doing her backstroke. You are there, and I am, am there. Everybody from the Presbytery and Lookout Mountain Community Church is there. They're all there. Judas is, is there. Even Hitler is there, minus his fear, his shame, and his rage. We're all there praising the Lamb on the throne. Why? Because he has ransomed us for God. If we look through that open door, I think it will open a door in us. A door to others, a door to God, and a door to all creation. You see, I think it's all the same door. Jesus is the door. 
Because he has conquered, he is unable, he's able, this is what we'll read, that he's able to unwrap the scroll of creation and give meaning to all reality. He's the meaning of God. God is salvation. As he, as this is what we'll read, as he unwraps the scroll, breaking the seals, releasing the horsemen, sounding the trumpets, the thunders, the, and then calling on the seven angels to pour out the seven bowls. As, as the dragon rages, as the beasts deceive, as the harlot seduces, as history happens, something rises through that open door before the throne of God. Chapter 8, verse 4, it's the prayers of the saints mixed with incense from the altar on which the lamb is sacrificed. It's prayers, not crusades, not government programs, not big budgets, not even mission organizations or agencies. It's prayers, prayers rising from where? Prison cells, uh, lonely apartments, prayers rising from hospital rooms and old rugged crosses, pr prayers rising from children just like Mary floating on the abyss and muttering to themselves, he's coming back, he's coming back, my daddy always does what he says, prayers from cement pipes and tired old nuns in New York City and Calcutta, India, prayers from people who appear to have no power but people who patiently endure, refusing to call on their idols because they believe that God alone is salvation. They believe God is salvation, Jesus. It turns out that prayers from Philadelphia control the world. For there's an open door between Philadelphia and the throne of God, and his name is Jesus. All things work together for the good with those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So what's his purpose? Salvation. It's his word. Jesus. And I think we've been called according to his purpose. Ultimately, all that he has created is called according to his purpose. Even those hiding in giant cement pipes that don't love his purpose but hate his purpose. God will shatter their pride and save them from themselves, even as he has saved us from ourselves. But as for us and as for now, I do suspect that God has placed before us, and I, I mean this collectively as a particular church, like one of the seven churches, I do suspect that God has placed before us an, an open door that no one can shut. Because we have little power, have kept his word, and not denied his name. God is salvation. If, if, and I say, I use if here, because I'm just a dude, you know, but if that is, in fact, the case, we mustn't get impatient and resort to human power in order to open doors. I think that's what the church has done for 2,000 years. Uh, resort to human power to open doors, claiming that God might not be salvation if we don't first believe that he is salvation. And if that's the case for us, we mustn't concern ourselves with human, really human power at all, with earthly politics and budgets and big programs. We can participate in all those things. Maybe we're even supposed to use those things but not rely on those things. If it is in fact the case that God has placed before us an open door, we must worship Jesus. We must look to the throne and worship Jesus. And, and then when we're done with that, worship Jesus and worship Jesus and then worship Jesus and trust that he will show us the door, open the door, and walk us through the door because he is the door.
He's the door to your heart, to your neighbor's heart, to your father's heart, to all creation, to our particular calling. The door is Jesus. God is salvation. That's not a map. That's the way. At the end of the Revelation, John sees the New Jerusalem coming down as a bride adorned for her husband. Her gates, her doors, are never shut by day. And in the city, there is no night. Revelation 3.8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut because you have little power and you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. I bet Jesus' new name is Eric. and Mary Rose, and Mary, and Jimmy, and Ron, and you, and me, and Jerusalem, because we are his body. Verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. And in the same manner, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Behold, I set before you an open door. Let him who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. So, joy to the world. Because look, just, just, just look, John, just look who rules it, who it is that's standing on the golden throne. It's a slaughtered lamb. And so, yeah, you're experiencing the storm of the century. It feels like hell down here sometimes. But he said he'd be back, and he always does what he says. And you can float as long as you want to. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel. And, and, and I, was, I was thinking of one more thing my friend said to me, and I, I, guess, I think I've been afraid to kind of share this publicly for 10 years, but I remember he said, Peter, God really wants this, but it will get smaller before it gets bigger. And he says that right now, this is to be about worship. That's it, just worship. 
at the time, I thought, okay, great. We've got to sing a bunch of songs. So I had Justin sing songs, remember, for a long time at the end of the service. But, but, but I realized, wait a minute. What is worship? Worship is looking at the throne and saying, wow, you are so good. That's all it is. And, and you do that every day when you, when you go to work. It, it, everything, is, everything we do is supposed to be out of worship, out of gratitude for God. So prayers can be worship. Singing can be worship. Your business can be worship. Every breath you take can be worship. But I think what it means for us is I think Jesus is just saying, come worship me. And when I want to, I will provide an open door. And you can walk through it because I'm good. And I will come for you. I will come back. I always do what I say. Believe the gospel. Have courage. In Jesus' name, amen.